Hello and welcome to Himal Interviews. This is Shubhanga Pandey, the editor at Himal South Asian, and today I'll be speaking to Jeff Ong, an anthropologist of Myanmar who works on the politics of infrastructure and economic history of post-colonial Myanmar, and is currently doing his PhD at Columbia University. In the context of the military coup and ongoing violence against civilians, in this episode we try to look at the roots of economic and political power in the country. and see if a more nuanced history of post-colonial Myanmar helps us better understand the current crisis. Hello, Jeff. Uh, welcome to Himal South Asian Podcast. Thanks for having me. I was thinking um, if we can start by talking about the, the resistant movements we're seeing in, in Myanmar. And, you know, because a lot of reporting and coverage about the protests, we don't really get to know what the variety and what the composition of the various resistance movements and protests and strikes uh, that are going on in the country um, and also their geographical spread. So I was thinking if you could you know, unpack this for us and, and just talk about what are the different forms of protest and why it's important to, to know that. There's a, there's a lot happening across the country and it, a lot has also changed certainly since sort of early in mid-February as well. But we've seen, uh, we've seen kind of in, in urban centers, of course, these sort of massive demonstrations um, early on kind of occupying large intersections. Um, we saw also in sort of smaller towns and cities across the country, similar large turnouts, large kind of marches and demonstrations. Um, There, there has been some kind of institutional grounding for, for these kinds of, this kind of ongoing show of mass defiance. So in, in Yangon, for example, the, the sort of major trade unions were really important in kind of swelling the demonstrations early on. There have also been, um, I mean, in some ways, the, the, the earliest thing that happened was a kind of public sector strike, right? And so there's a kind of general strike that's the, that's the kind of um, backdrop for all of this. But it began with public sector workers. And so you had a certain amount of, how to say, kind of um, pre-existing kind of structural unity, maybe in some sense, among public sector workers who had kind of roughly shared experiences. I mean, not, not necessarily across sectors, but within sectors. So let's say um, health workers of various kinds, um, civil servants in, in, in kind of... Um, township administrations. There were also kind of actually a, a lot of people like people who work at banks as well were, were really important in terms of some of the kind of economic implications of this general strike. And then there, there were, there are kind of workers in certain industries like, um, let's say shipyard workers in Mandalay were really important railway workers as well. Um, so you've seen this kind of sectoral Uh, you, you could, you could do a sort of sectoral breakdown in some sense. Um, and then in, in other places like, so in, in Douai, for example, quite consistently, actually, even from early on, some of the most consistent kind of, um, most organized demonstration, demonstrations were run by, um, teachers and engineers. <laughs> um, and so, so teachers, of course, are, are part of the public sector. And so again, that's, that's part of this kind of public sector grounding to the, this kind of civil disobedience movement, the CDM. And then the engineers really raised the question of kind of student unions as well, um, which in the Douai area are, are pretty important kind of political actors. 
and so do you expect you know because of the intensification of violence um last two three weeks um i mean do we also see the nature of protests uh, or the strategies changing in response or or should we expect to see that yeah i think that's probably probably fair to say one of the one of the patterns that's taken shape has been essentially in, in many ways the security forces have managed to kind of reclaim the central areas of a lot of urban centers and so kind of recurring demonstrations have shifted into um typically kind of tighter more residential areas in Yangon for example this has been one of the kind of key patterns um so demonstrations have shifted into tighter more residential areas as well as kind of industrial outskirts and peripheries of various kinds industrial zone areas um Langtaya uh, is has the largest factory concentration of factories in in Myanmar but North Okolapa is another kind of industrial periphery for Yangon um so demonstrations have sort of shifted to these areas where among other things it's it's possible actually for people to kind of build more effective barricades and maintain more kind of disciplined protest formations um but repression has followed i mean there there was massive bloodshed in both Langtaya and North Okolapa but in some areas because of the sort of how to say kind of tactical affordances of some of these areas they've actually been able to kind of fight cops and soldiers to a standstill and there's a sort of holding pattern in some places i would also say that as urban areas have become as as it's been more difficult to sort of retake some of the really central urban areas i would say that rural areas in general have become more important as well so for instance around dewey in the south dewey town is now relatively quiet although there are still um strikes and demonstrations in dewey but the surrounding villages have really seen an upsurge in kind of marches demonstrations and strikes which has been um really kind of amazing to see and we've also seen kind of urban protesters in a replay of former uprisings i mean basically 1988 we've seen protesters from urban areas also going to territory held by armed groups um particularly the current national union where um they're training in things like kind of firearms hand grenades kind of tactical strikes on military facilities um so there's a lot of talk about kind of expanded armed struggle um of course the country has been in uh let's say sort of um varying forms of civil war for quite a long time now so civil war is not something new but we're seeing maybe the possibility of a sort of expanded um expanded civil war potentially right and uh, are there any kind of organizational or operational linkages between the national league for democracy um nld and and groups of protesters on the ground um because we also know there's a a government in exile largely represented by i think nld mps um is there any connection of that kind sure there there's yeah so there's a few key kind of i guess institutional nodes in that sense um that have also been quite important of course i mean so there's there's the cdm the civil disobedience movement there's the crph which is let's see what does that stand for the committee representing the people's lotal i believe so th- i mean it, this was the the kind of elected government that was deposed in in february right so these are largely nld mps as you say um and they've been they've managed to kind of stake a claim to being a sort of parallel government um and then there's the general strike committee there's the general strike committee of nationalities 
the relationships between these different institutions is um, has been tense at times, as far as I understand, at least. I'm I'm not someone who's sort of on the inside of these conversations, so I can't really speak with particularly kind of privileged information. But as one would expect, um, there are certain tensions and difficulties where you have, let's say, CDM, which is a sort of genuinely popular uprising, um, which produces, let's say, a very different kind of political character than the CRPH, right, which is a group of um, kind of deposed MPs. Um, then you have the kind of general strike committee of nationalities, which raises the question of kind of um, the ethnic borderlands and what kind of representation they have or might expect from a sort of shifting political terrain. These are different, difficult political questions to work out. Um, I, I haven't seen any sort of, um, uh, any sort of massive conflicts between these institutions sort of erupting in public, at least. So there's a certain amount of discipline in that sense that's been maintained, which is probably a good thing. Um, but these are sort of the, the sort of a few of the kind of key institutions, at least. Um, now, if we can zoom out a bit from the immediate crisis and, um, you know, try to make sense of the political and economic structures and, and sources of power in Myanmar, um, especially over the you know past few decades. Um, I was wondering if you could briefly describe the kind of economic or structural transitions that the country has experienced at various stages um, in, since 1948. Um, because the story we often hear is one of, you know, 60 years of authoritarian rule that's replaced by a multi-party democracy, and now that's in crisis. But... Um, but I guess the story is, is more complicated than that. Absolutely. It's, it's, a big, it's a big topic, but I think a, a few things to keep in mind. One obvious thing is that the so-called multi-party democracy period of the last 10 or so years um, would probably be better, be better understood as a kind of hybrid civilian-military kind of diarchy, right? So the military, of course held quite a bit of power under this kind of quasi-civilian democratic experiment, holding a few key ministries, holding 25% of elected parliamentary seats, um, maintaining certainly massive economic power. Um, so it, it would be a mistake to overestimate too much, at least, the degree to which uh, a kind of full democratic sort of blossoming had taken place, let's say. And then for the preceding period of supposedly something like 50 years of authoritarian rule, um, there as well, we have to differentiate somewhat carefully at least. So sometimes that kind of generalization becomes something like, um, you know, Myanmar has been under kind of authoritarian socialist rule for 50 years, and thus the kind of reform period that seemed to take place beginning around 2010, 2011, um, sort of had to succeed, right? So, I mean, there, there was a sort of flattening of the previous historical period that served to justify some of what I would say were quite sort of unequal and unjust power relations going forward. Um, because supposedly the preceding period was so bad, we just kind of had to accept whatever kind of opening that 2010-2011 period seemed to offer. Now, it was not 50 preceding years of authoritarian socialism, certainly in the sense that from the early 1990s, we saw the beginning of of a shift towards market-oriented, uh, a market-oriented economy, 
Um, so in the 1990s, um, the socialist economy was really dismantled. Private capital returned to the country. Um, the military began taking up very important positions in the kind of emergent private sector, especially through two military conglomerates that were founded during that time. There were there was a kind of handful of um, national entrepreneurs, uh, which is a nice word for them, um, sort of military associates who accumulated quite a bit of capital in the 1990s and became themselves sort of tycoons. They're less kind of, they're known in a less friendly way as kind of crony capitalists. I would say they're, they're just capitalists, but they, they run um, a lot of the really big um, private sector conglomerates in the country. So that was another key shift that happened at that time. And then in, in the 2000s, there was a sort of fire sale of, of state assets um, many of which went to these these kind of national entrepreneurs. Um, so you had a kind of process of privatization, of market liberalization um, over 20-something years preceding that kind of 2010-2011 form period. And part of what that meant, I've argued at least, is that the military secured its position in the private sector in a way that they could formally at least relinquish some political power and still maintain quite a bit of control in the country through a sort of alternative set of arrangements, namely, again, through the private sector. Um, for me, that's one of the key differences between the 88 uprising um, and the sort of 2010-2011 period, because an election followed 88, right? I mean, people tend to sometimes fall into saying the 88 uprising was some sort of failure, but it, it brought down the socialist government. The coup that happened at that point happened after the popular uprising because so much had been done to sort of upend the existing order. And the military did concede to holding elections, they just didn't recognize the results, right? And so why is it that by 2010, 2011, they said, okay, we will concede to at least a modicum of multi-party democracy. The key difference to me seems to be largely in that sort of economic uh, domain. And then you can go back even further, right? So, I mean, you can always keep going back further, but the, the kind of um, 60s, 70s, and 80s, even there as well, I think it would be a mistake to see this as a sort of single kind of stagnant period of military dictatorship. Um, one of the things that I find interesting when I talk with some of my older family members in Yangon is they, they emphasize actually that the military seized power in 62, but it really wasn't until something like the mid 70s or even the late 70s when it became sort of grindingly clear um, how much had been lost. So for a certain period of time, it seemed like, okay, this might be temporary. You know, at that, at that point as well, um, Burma, as the country was known in English, was, was really a sort of regional leader. Um, it, it was the sort of education system was quite strong. The economy had been relatively strong. Um, even things like the, you know, the airport was sort of the main travel hub in mainland Southeast Asia. Um, in many, in many ways, sort of Thailand and, and Burma had sort of, um, reversed positions at that point. And so, you know, the, the military took power and people were like, well, you know, how bad could it really get? And it, and it took a while before that really became clear. I mean, there were the protests around Uthant's funeral in the mid seventies. There were, there were strike waves as well. There was an ongoing communist insurgency. And there were uprisings in the kind of minoritized ethnic borderlands. There was a lot going on. But 
it wasn't really until the 80s when things were, when it became sort of, um, it got to a point where that kind of popular uprising um, could sort of explode in the late 80s. Um, and even things like state-owned enterprises, right? I mean, it wasn't until the 80s that they're, that they're sort of, the, the kind of massive failure of the developmental regime also became sort of too much to ignore. And so, so even that period, you have to kind of carefully historicize, right? So this is why I, I, I find it not entirely helpful to think of the 2010-2011 period as this sort of dramatic break with supposedly sort of preceding 50 years of, of authoritarian socialism, because um, it's, it's just not accurate, actually. Right. No, that's, that's really useful. Um, and I think the nuances really help us think through maybe what's happening today. Um, I mean, for example, there's a lot of talk about how, you know, the choices that the military made now seems irrational and, you know, flies in the face of all interests they might have. I mean, if we follow the same logic of these kind of constant calibrations they're making, um, on their political and economic power, is it, can, can we understand the coup in that same way? Well, I understand why it's been difficult, and certainly for, for me as well, I include myself, it's been difficult to make sense of the logic and justification that the military might have had for seizing power. And because in, in many ways, right, the, the kind of, let's say, political dispensation uh, that they had done so much to shape for the preceding 10 years um, was really quite a bit, very much in their favor, right? Mm. So, so why... Why I sort of smash that alignment? Well, there are a few things. For one thing, I think as surprising as the coup seemed to, to many of us, I think you could also argue that it, in many ways, instead of producing a sort of radical break with the preceding period, it simply entrenches pre-existing power relations where, as, as, I've, as I've argued, the military maintained massive political power and certainly economic power as well. Um, so in a way, the, the coup simply formalizes what had already been the reality. So there's that. There's also the fact that the, the economy did start looking pretty grim around 2017. And um, part of that owes to the Rohingya, the ethnic cleansing of Rohingya, um, where you had some companies, um, kind of getting cold feet a little bit. You had Western businesses um, that were showing a little bit more hesitation to invest and do business. You had tourists who started staying away. Um, but there, there were other economic factors as well. I mean, a, a lot of the sort of larger projects that the NLD was trying to bring forward um, uh, kind of stumbled in various ways. Um, you had also the, the NLD making very little progress on the, the peace process as well. Um, so there were there were a number of factors where you could say perhaps that the alignment between the military and the civilian political leadership was always a fairly tense one, right? And if it was based in some sense on a sort of fragile kind of kind of base that was at least in part material, um, that is to say economic, then if the economy starts looking pretty bad um, a few years ago, then you might say, okay, then the kind of conditions that sustain that alignment um, were historical, right? And and once they changed, then you would expect the kind of political alignment to change as well. It's I have to say it's, it's a I admit that's a somewhat speculative position, but I 
I think it's worth considering some of those factors, at least in a little bit more detail than they've kind of generally been considered so far. I think it's been a little bit frustrating to see how quickly people have sort of chalked it up to a question of personal animus between Aung San Suu Kyi and Minna Line, um, which is certainly there. I mean, the, the kind of top level relations between the civilian political leadership and the military are not good. That's definitely true. Um, and that absolutely matters. I, I just think that we, that might be a starting place for trying to explain what's going on, but I don't think it's the sort of, it can be the end point of how we understand what's happened. And just linking, uh, you know, you mentioned the potential flight of foreign capital, um, or at least hesitation among some uh, in investments in the country. Um, now, you know, there's a lot of conversation also about what the rest of the world can and should do in determining events and even outcomes in Myanmar and you know, it's something that comes up immediately, the possible economic sanctions, withdrawal of capital, all of that. How grounded do you find those debates in light of what the nature of investments, the flow of capital, uh, you know, the political economy of Myanmar looks like today? Yes and no. I I think it's, it is true that Western capital, broadly speaking, has become more important over the last 10 years, just because um, part of part of why the kind of civilian military diarchy, part of why that sort of elite hegemonic pact kind of made sense was that um, it would bring more foreign investment into the country, right? Namely Western capital, because um, kind of Asian capital, uh, Chinese investors, Thai, Singaporean um, had always been there. So the, in part, the story of, of Burma, of, of Myanmar, as having been sort of radically economically isolated um, was not entirely accurate because there, there was, there was plenty of business being done in the country. It just wasn't for the most part by Western companies. Um, so it is true that over the last 10 years or so, um, Western capital has become more important, but it's still not, not even, not very close in terms of importance to, um, Chinese capital, Thai capital, Singaporean capital. For me, at least, I, you know, given the sort of core dynamics of capital investment, of, of capital flows, capital accumulation in the country, the core dynamics have depended on Asian capital for decades and decades. And I don't see Western sanctions radically altering that. Um, I do think they would matter on the ground. And I do think that the discussion around sanctions um, uh, is, is, is not one that I tend to find very productive. Um, from the side of kind of a lot of people who've been in the streets in the last couple of months and, and not just the streets, right. But also, um, in the villages, let's say as well, sort of in, in these sort of shows of defiance, right. As, supposedly there's a lot of support for, um, like responsibility to protect, for example, R2P. Supposedly there's a lot of interest in, in some form of foreign intervention, whether that's sort of UN intervention or, or Western intervention. I, I think it's important to be honest about the likelihood of those kinds of scenarios, which is fairly low. Uh, I think where there could potentially be actions from foreign governments would be in terms of um, potentially recognition of the CRPH as an alternative government. It's a tricky, it's a very tricky issue because, I mean, as we saw, like, let's say with something like Venezuela, right, where um, a bunch of countries suddenly um, recognized um, Wang Guaido, 
um, is that, you know, then there's, you're, you suddenly sort of open yourself to accusations of sort of imperial intervention of one kind or another. It's, it's a tough, it's a tough issue. For me, what it comes down to is that I, I'm not necessarily against the attempts of, um, sort of advocacy groups based abroad or exile groups to sort of form relations with foreign governments or try to work at the level of the Security Council. But, and, and, and it's hard for me to, to, give a sort of predictive account of any of those things. I, I'm just not involved in any of those discussions, to be quite honest. So I can't really say for sure um, in, in any kind of granular detail where they might or might not go. But what I would say with a fair amount of confidence is that the most important factor is in some sense to keep the streets in one way or another, i.e. to maintain this kind of mass resistance in the country. Because let's say you can secure a some form of action at the Security Council, or let's say um, a handful of governments starts being willing to um, kind of think about recognizing the CRPH as an alternative government. I don't think that works without there being kind of clear mass defiance of military rule on the ground. I mean, maybe those, that kind of recognition could still be extended, but what would it mean without without this kind of massive insurrectionary force in the country, I think it would fall quite flat and would, would be, uh, it would become sort of all the more risky to, to sort of do that. And I don't, I don't necessarily want to set up an opposition between that sort of thing and what's happening abroad, but I just think that there's no, there's no comparison in terms of the importance. For me, uh, what's most important is what happens um, at the level of sort of material political struggle in the country. Now, coming to the end, um, I was just reading a report about, uh, you know, thousands of workers um, who have returned to their villages to escape the crackdowns in Yangon and other larger cities and are now unable to support their families. And you've also written in the past about kind of growing um, dispossession of land in rural areas and this kind of steady undermining of rural working class um who either have to move to urban centers in the country or you know leave for thailand or other countries for employment um what kind of impact do you think the coup will have on on that situation and and how that might affect the future of 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 politics but also economy in myanmar especially the borderland areas well in some ways the return of migrants to rural areas um is another kind of phenomenon that that kind of teaches us maybe about something that was already the case for quite a bit of time, which is that rural areas have been um, sort of sites of social reproduction. They've been sites w- that have in some ways kind of underwritten capitalist development in the cent- urban centers. Um, in, in some ways, the, the kinds of urban industry we've seen have always depended on the ability of largely young women migrants to depend to an extent on on their relations with rural areas, right? So they, they, the kind of, kind of rural agricultural production has always kind of, and in that, you could go back, you know, quite, quite far with that. I mean, to the, the kind of core, arguably the core piece of the sort of socialist developmental regime was, uh, kind of grain purchasing kind of regime that was in place where there was a sort of cap on prices for agricultural products. Um, in order to subsidize the urban working classes, right, which were supposed to be the sort of engine of industrial modernization. Um, so it's, it's an old story in some ways for rural areas to be sort of 
those sites that um, are sort of fallen back upon in times of crisis. But that question of kind of dispossession and and kind of um, land politics. I mean, that that's a question of uh, of kind of trade and and capital investment and. For the moment, of course, a lot of that is, you know, essentially on hold, right? Um, so, again, I, I think those kinds of dynamics don't necessarily depend too much on Western capital, broadly speaking. So, I, I mean, if if and when um, this situation quiets down, and however it resolves itself, whether it's um, the military going forward or perhaps the the CRPH manages to get itself back in power. Or maybe with the sort of mass defiance, this kind of mass resistance that we've seen, maybe it even pushes beyond a sort of NLD-centric political vision. Who knows? I, I haven't seen um, I haven't seen a lot of critique of of sort of structural economic factors. So it seems to me that you we would expect that whatever the sort of next phase of this political crisis turns out to be. Um, you would expect the sort of, again, the kind of core drivers of capital accumulation to more or less remain in place, which also means that the kind of undermining of rural semi-subsistence would also probably continue. And you would see people kind of streaming back to the cities um, in one form or another, whether that's kind of going back to Yangon or, or other kind of industrial centers or certainly to Thailand, right? Um, I, I don't think I've seen a ton of information about people going back from Thailand at, at this point, of course. And there, there was some of this like with, with COVID, um, but, but with the sort of political crisis of the last couple of months, I think um, migrant Burmese migrants in Thailand have been pretty happy to stay put. Um, but there have been the, the sort of, again, the kind of structural factors that lead people to seek out work in Thailand um, seem to me those will remain in place going forward as well. Well, thank you, Jeff, for, you know, really interesting and informative conversation. Um, and, and thanks for uh, joining us on Himal Podcast today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Himal and I'm very glad to, to chat for sure. For more Himal Podcasts, go to himalmag.com slash podcasts.